This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 8, Ancient Athens, Part 2. Last time on History of the World podcast, we took a close look at the early development of ancient Athens. We looked at how the city recovered from the late Bronze Age collapse, and how after reverting back to a basic lifestyle, the city would slowly begin to acquire wealth and the population would grow. We saw how the wealthiest families would be regarded as the Athenian aristocracy, and how they would create an oligarchic style of rule, with many elected archons annually ruling the polis, and with a council of elders called the Areopagus overseeing. In the meantime, other polis were developing in a similar manner, creating a necessity for success in order to keep up with the neighbours, and forcing polis like Athens to advance quickly the pressures would result in an attempted coup d'etat, which failed but worried the aristocracy enough to make radical reforms in order to keep the lower classes on their side. A man called Solon was made the tyrant of Athens temporarily in order to create the necessary changes and he would create a general assembly of common citizens who would have the ability to vote on the fortunes of Athens. Despite these modernising reforms, Athens went from one form of dysfunctionality to another, and this would result in a successful coup which was supported by the General Assembly in the year 561 BCE and led by a man called Pisistratus. Pisistratus would rule as tyrant and would make the necessary reforms in order to keep Athens up with its neighbours. Now, we need to find out what happened next in the story of ancient Athens. As we mentioned in last week's podcast, Pisistratus was a good tyrant. He opened up the restricted trade laws of Athens, allowing for artisans and producers of resources much more opportunity to make money. He would also allow people to borrow money from the state to buy land for agricultural means which would now have more value with more opportunity to sell the produce. Digging deeper into the tyranny of Pisistratus, there doesn't appear to be many aspects of Athenian society that did not experience a positive move during this time. This does not mean that everybody in the Athenian polis was happy though. On a couple of occasions through the period of Pisistratus, it appears that he was deposed and exiled, only to come back stronger and reclaim his throne. Ultimately, Pisistratus died in around 527 
BCE, after his final rule of Athens lasted for almost 20 years uninterrupted. Did Pisistratus leave Athens better than he found it? If the reviews of his reign are anything to go by, it appears to be undeniable. The 4th century BCE Greek philosopher Aristotle described the tyranny of Pisistratus as a golden age. The biggest problem with Pisistratus's reign is that once he was gone, he was gone, and so was his undeniable leadership skills. The rule of Athens would actually pass down to Pisistratus's two sons, Hipparchus and Hippias. The events of the years following Pisistratus's death can be gathered from a number of sources, most of which are penned by important individuals of the classical age. We have mentioned Herodotus on many occasions, who lived during the 5th century BCE, the century after the reign of Pisistratus. Herodotus has been popularly referred to as the father of history, as we often refer to his work for clues about a great number of ancient societies which he wrote about. Always, we need to be careful when reading his work as we can feel suspicious about his motivations, political bias or even the fact that he may have been given false information during his travels. It is therefore very important that we have the ability to triangulate what Herodotus wrote. One of the first people to suggest that Herodotus was creating stories for effect was his contemporary Thucydides. Unlike Herodotus, who was born in Anatolia, Thucydides was born in the polis of Athens on the Greek mainland. Thucydides was a contemporary of Herodotus but perhaps a generation younger. Many would describe the historical literature of Thucydides as a little more scientifically based than Herodotus, who would be more likely to make a reference to Greek gods in his own writings, taking a more fantastic stance than Thucydides, who would be much more scientific by comparison. So we often compare the works of Herodotus and Thucydides when attempting to ascertain the truth as their writings tend to be the oldest available and are not necessarily loyal to each other. So we can triangulate the two and maybe get a little closer to the truth than just by solely reading one or the other. It is possible that both of Pisistratus's sons, Hipparchus and Hippias, co-ruled Athens as a continuation of what we call the Pisistratid tyranny. The two of them may have ruled Athens together from their father's death in around 527 BCE through to 514 BCE when something happened that has been described as a personal dispute by both Herodotus and Thucydides. This is the murder of Hipparchus by two men who have come to be known as the Tyrannicides. 
The Tyrannicides themselves as individuals are a good example of social attitudes within the ancient Greek citizenry. The two Tyrannicides were named Harmodius and Aristogiton, and according to Herodotus, the two men came from a tribe native to Eritrea on the island of Euboea. Aristogiton was a middle-aged gentleman and Harmodius was his young gay lover and possibly young enough to be his son. This kind of intergenerational homosexual relationship is called pederasty and appears to be a socially accepted part of ancient Greek citizenry although it does appear that it was not acceptable for the slave classes. We see this kind of carnal appreciation between two human males being associated with the physical appreciation of the human male form, especially if depicted as an athletic male, the type who might be an Olympic champion. This association is demonstrated in the artwork such as the sculptures of ancient Greece and the pottery decorations, for example. What the Tyrannicides did, as we mentioned, is murder Hipparchus. The word Tyrannicide suggests the murder of a tyrant, but Thucydides tells us that Hippias, the brother of Hipparchus, was the sole tyrant of Athens, contrary to the general claim that the two brothers were co-ruling. It is supposed that they also intended to kill Hippias, but failed. The young Harmodius was struck down at the scene of Hipparchus's murder, while Aristogiton was arrested and subsequently tortured in a bid to extract the names of the co-conspirators against the tyranny. He later died in captivity. The surviving brother, Hippias, would continue the tyranny of Athens, but according to sources, he would become a cruel tyrant as a result. Before the tyranny of the Pisistratids, the rule of Athens was based on a polis built politically by the aristocracy. Aristocracy literally means the rule of the best. In fact, when we are talking about the best, we are talking about the wealthiest families. If you were not in these families, you were not in the aristocracy. As we discovered during the last episode, the exclusive influence of the aristocracy in Athens came under threat from the lower classes, and the aristocracy had to cede some of their powers to accommodate the power will of the populace and preserve their position as much as possible. One of those powerful families were the Alcmeonids, and it does appear that the relationships between the Alcmeonid family and the Pisistratid tyranny were strained. Some sources claim that the family was exiled from Athens, 
but this is challenged by some who claim that the Alcmeonids were still serving as archons in Athens during the period of this supposed exile. If the Alcmeonids were exiled from Athens, then the reasons for this could go back far back beyond the tyranny of the Pisistratids and to an apparent curse that was placed on the Alcmeonids for their part in the murder of the Chelonians way back over a hundred years earlier. We spoke about the attempted coup d'etat of the Chelonians in the last episode. Whether or not the Alcmeonids were completely exiled, we are aware that they were not satisfied with the Pisistratid tyranny of Athens and were prepared to do something about it. The action that they took was almost unthinkable. They sought help to overthrow the Pisistratid tyranny from the Spartans. Spartans In order to understand international relationships, we ought to examine Sparta and how it was a foreign nation, but still something we regard as part of ancient Greece. The polis of Sparta was actually called Lacedaemon, but we popularly call it Sparta after the city of Sparta within it. For the purpose of keeping things easy, we will refer to the polis as Sparta, for the same reason that we have been calling the Iranians the Persians and the Egyptian city of Nechen Harakompolis. We know that these names are not historically accurate or that they are exonyms, but it is more important to me to make the podcast easy to listen to, and I believe that selecting the popular names for places is correct at this particular time. Typically, when we think of the Spartans, we often have images of heavily armoured infantrymen living a warrior lifestyle. In actual fact, the Spartans spoke a very similar language to the Athenians and had a political structure that has similarities to the Athenians. So let's initially pick up what we already know about Sparta and the Peloponnese, which is the geographical location in question. As we know, the Mycenaeans were residents of the Peloponnese, which is a lump of land at the far south of the Balkan Peninsula, which would be an island, but for the small isthmus of land, which attaches it to the mainland of Europe at Corinth. The Mycenaeans mysteriously disappeared after the late Bronze Age collapse, and then following the Greek Dark Age, we see the emergence of a blossoming society. We believe that these people were Dorians, and people who are also referred to as the Doric Greeks. One theory about the origin of the Dorians is that they moved into the Peloponnese after the Mycenaeans vacated it. Another theory suggests that they were always the people of the Peloponnese and that they were under the rule of the Mycenaeans. Whatever the case, when this new society, who we call the Spartans, emerged in the Peloponnese, maybe in around the 10th century BCE, we believe that they came to speak in a language called 
Doric Greek. Sparta started out as a couple of small settlements between the mountains of the Peloponnese and linked up with another couple of settlements. These two pairs of settlements may have been respectively ruled by a monarch and this amalgamation might explain why Sparta as a polis had a dual monarchy, traditionally with two kings, as opposed to the nine archons of Athens. This Spartan polis would expand its borders westwards during the 8th century BCE when it subjugated the Messenians. The Messenians are going to prove to be quite important when assessing the very nature of the Spartans as a nation-state. The Spartans were able to be quite self-sufficient, putting the more fertile lands of the Peloponnese to good use and probably not being so dependent on international trade as somewhere like Athens. This meant that Spartan society was much more regimented than its neighbours and was quietly left to its own devices within the Peloponnese to develop into a strong military-minded polis. Male citizens of Sparta were encouraged into a military way of life as children and when they came of age they were encouraged to produce more male offspring to enhance and improve the army. They would remain in the military for almost all of their lives until around the age of 60. Athenian soldiers would be hoplites trained to fight in phalanx formation but they would not be revered like the Spartan hoplites who mastered the technique of phalanx warfare. The Spartans would also have their own council of elders who would also have a strong say in the country's politics and laws. They were called the Gerousia and were not unlike the Athenian Areopagus. The Spartans would also have a council of citizens, once again very similar to Athens. In Athens, it is a great assembly called the Ecclesia. In Sparta, it was called the Appella. So there were very definite similarities, but there were also some very important distinctions. You will recall us talking of the Messinians. The Messinians were the Doric Greeks living to the west of Sparta and the Spartans subjugated their lands and their population after winning the Messinian Wars of the 7th century BCE. The Messinians themselves would be consigned to the slave class of Sparta, practicing the menial jobs such as the tilling of the land. The slaves of Sparta were collectively called the Helots and the Spartans would treat them badly. Every year they would ceremonially terrorise them with beatings and public humiliation, possibly to remind them that they were subject to the Spartans and that any uprising would be dealt with, with the harshest possible consequences. The weakest Helots would be slaughtered 
in a bid to keep the strongest alive and produce strong and worthy offspring with the physical capability to do the most efficient work. The Spartans would also control the reproduction of its own citizens by selecting the fittest for reproduction. This kind of population control is called eugenics and one of the most well-known modern advocates of eugenics for the purpose of the betterment of a race was Adolf Hitler, who himself praised the Spartan way of doing things. The Spartans would invest a lot of time and energy into taking as much Peloponnesian land into their own sphere of influence, and they were certainly the most powerful of all the Peloponnesian polis. However, they would find that the other polis of the Peloponnese were not a complete pushover. Argos would defy the Spartans having its own decent amount of wealth. Corinth was also to be respected with its strong naval capabilities. Although the Spartans did successfully form an alliance with them, During the 6th century BCE, the Spartans would make a big effort to take control of the Peloponnese, but were restricted by the Arcadians at the Battle of the Fetters, and by the Argives at the Battle of the 300 Champions. However, even though the Spartans struggled to conquer the Peloponnese through conquest, it would head a political alliance called the Peloponnesian League, during the 6th century BCE, and this would become a significant entity during the 5th century BCE. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's now head back to Athens and the period of the Alcmeonid noble family and their issue with the Pisistratid ruling tyranny of Athens. Clisthenes. We learned earlier in the episode that the Athenian tyrant Pisistratus died in around 527 BCE and the tyranny of Athens continued in the hands of Pisistratus's sons Hipparchus and Hippias. Many of the nobility of Athens opposed the tyranny and Hipparchus was assassinated in 514 BCE, leaving his brother Hippias in sole charge of Athens. One of the noble families called the Alcmeonids would make a name for themselves at this point and they would use the highly regarded Oracle of Delphi to influence events. The Alcmeonids, knowing the Spartans to be very pious, would bribe the Oracle of Delphi into advising the Spartans to attack Athens. This would be an unprecedented move by the Spartans who had otherwise been fully occupied with conquering the Peloponnese. The Spartan king was Cleomenes I who was a true Spartan king, very interested in subjugating those troublesome Peloponnesian neighbours such as the Argives of Argos. It should maybe come as no surprise that Cleomenes was interested in having a direct hand in Athenian politics and fortunes. Cleomenes 
would initially dispatch an army to conquer Athens and put an end to the reign of the tyrant Hippias. The first Spartan attack on Athens was unsuccessful, so Cleomenes decided to personally lead the follow-up attack. Hippias was not ready to submit to the mighty Spartans led by their king Cleomenes, so the Spartans took those people dearest to Hippias, and Hippias finally conceded defeat, having been trapped on the Acropolis and effectively under siege. The Spartans would spare the lives of the Pisistratids if Hippias agreed to abandon and leave Athens for good, and so this would be. Sparta had successfully ended the tyranny of the Pisistratids, and the Alcmeonids would make their move to take control of Athens, fronted by a man called Clisthenes. Clisthenes, often pronounced Cleisthenes, had some very clear ideas about how Athens should be ruled. He suggested that Athens be divided up into 140 voting districts called deems, and these deems would represent the entire population demographic of the Athenian polis. So you would have deems representing those people of the city, deems representing the arable lands of Attica, and deems representing the mercantile people of the coast and the associated artisans of their communities. Deems would be grouped into tribes with absolutely no regard for geographical location to ensure that each tribe would have a fair mixture of the different society types of the Athenian polis. This would be in a bid to ensure that every citizen could be represented as fairly and as equally as possible, and that favouritism of a particular demographic was suppressed. Fifty members of each of the ten tribes would be called forward to create a 500-strong council of citizens called the Bouli. The concept of deems was not a new concept, but it was now that we see a practical use of the deems concept in order to create an impartial representation of society, and so this is the origin of the modern word to describe the concept of democracy. And Cleisthenes is celebrated as one of those people at the forefront of the creation of the concept of democracy. Clisthenes himself was not granted a clear passage to take a prominent position in Athens following the expulsion of the Pisistratids though. We have discussed previously how years were named in antiquity, with there being no numerical naming in the way that we know it today until the late classical and early medieval period. However, the years would still have names, and often they were named after a monarch and the accumulative year of their particular reign. In Athens, all people of prominence were traditionally replaced annually, so one of the archons himself would be called the eponymous archon 
and the year would be named after him. Clisthenes himself had been the eponymous archon back in 525 BCE, which is something that has confused historians who believed that all members of the Alcmeonid family were banished from Athens. In 508 BCE, the eponymous archon was a man called Isagoras, and Isagoras would prove to be unpopular with Clisthenes, pushing his fantastic new idea of a democratic society, which excited the people enough to want Isagoras to be replaced by Clisthenes. Isagoras would turn to the man who had influenced the events in Athens in the first place, for help, King Cleomenes of Sparta. Isagoras would have believed that it was his right to be the chief magistrate of Athens and King Cleomenes clearly saw an opportunity to support a legitimate and pro-Spartan man at the head of Athenian politics. Clisthenes would flee Athens as the Spartans would successfully take control of Athens once again with Isagoras citing the curse on the Alcmeonids, justifying the expulsion of Clisthenes from the polis. However, the citizens of Athens with their promise of a democratic polis were not interested in a pro-Spartan tyranny and they would entrap Isagoras and his Spartan allies where else but the Acropolis once again? If you were on the Acropolis and under siege, you would ironically rarely have the higher ground in a dispute. Isagoras and the Spartans had no option but to surrender to the citizens of Athens, who would even slaughter a number of Isagoras' supporters just to make the message clear. There isn't anything to tell us about Isagoras' fate after this incident, but he was consigned to history as the Athenian people welcomed Clisthenes back to Athens where his democratic model, which Clisthenes called isonomia rather than democracy, would flourish. The Road to Conflict Traditionally, the year attributed to the successful reforms of Clisthenes is 507 BCE. Now, if we go back to episode 2 when we were talking about the Achaemenid Persians, then we are fully aware that by this time the Persians had taken control of the lands of Anatolia, meaning that they were facing the same Aegean islands as Athens. So therefore it was only likely to be a matter of time before they would become involved in each other's affairs. By 546 BCE, the Lydian kingdom of Anatolia had fallen to the Achaemenids and coastal Anatolian cities of the Ionian League fell under Achaemenid subjugation. By the time of Clisthenes's democratic reforms, the Spartans had formed a powerful Peloponnesian League, which politically united the lands of the Peloponnese, but Argos and Achaea would always remain reluctant allies during this period. 
The Persian king during this time was Darius the Great, and the politics of the Greek polis were a little alien to the Persians, who were used to there being a local ruler or priesthood in their empire's satrapies. However, the Ionians, who were ethnically quite Greek, were ruled by feuding aristocratic families, so the Persians believed that the best way to keep these lands as obedient subjects was to install a puppet tyrant, or prop up an existing one. In the Ionian city of Miletus, one of Darius's tyrants was a man called Aristagoras, and he came to power towards the end of the 6th century BCE. So here we find that our story has now linked up to episode 2, and you already know what's happened next, but just in case you don't, let's tell the story again, but this time in the context of Athens. If we go back to the final days of the Pisistratid tyranny, then we learned of the expulsion of the tyrant Hippias from Athens. Hippias would seek refuge in Achaemenid lands. After these events, we learned of the Athenian archon, Isagoras' plea for help from the Spartans. This would lead his rival, Clisthenes, to seek help from the Achaemenids. The Achaemenids would demand land, and possibly even the full subjugation of the polis of Athens, and it appears that the Athenians refused. It may even be the case that the Achaemenids wanted to reinstate Hippias as a puppet tyrant. So Athens was pretty much on its own here as initial diplomatic relations between the Athenians and the power-hungry Achaemenids had not gone well. But there was also not much love lost between the Spartans and the Achaemenids either. So at the very least, if the Achaemenids did decide to start flexing their muscles in the lands of the Aegean, then Athens might find itself supported by the Peloponnesian League due to their common interest of keeping the Achaemenids out. Darius had already started gaining the submission of rulers of Macedonia and Thrace, the lands north of the Greek polis, on the European side of the Bosporus and Hellespont, which was an incredibly important trade waterway in the lands of the Black Sea, and a waterway which the Athenians had enjoyed the pleasure of overseeing during their history. Things were extremely tense in the region at the turn of the 5th century BCE, and the Aegean island of Naxos decided that it was time to revolt against the rule of the pro-Achaemenid tyrant Aristagoras in 499 BCE. Exactly how much the attraction of an Athenian-style democratic society motivated the Naxiots into rebellion is unknown, but we do know that there were people who were ready to support the Naxiot cause and rise up against Achaemenid oppression. However, there were also those ready to stand against rebellion in the hope of being given the favour of the Achaemenids, maybe even being granted a tyranny of their own someday. It appears that the Athenians believed that the threat of the Achaemenids was real. It was one thing that the Ionians appeared to be under the shadow of the Achaemenids, 
This was not such a big deal as they had also been under the shadow of the Lydians before them and the civilizations of the Balkan Peninsula, such as Athens and Sparta, had enough to deal with at home without worrying about anyone else. Now, the Achaemenids had gained power over Macedonia and demanded land from the Athenians. It seems that the Athenians and some of their neighbours knew that they would not be able to avoid a conflict. So now was as good a time as any to support a revolt against the Achaemenids. So the rebellion in Naxos was not put down by the Achaemenid-backed tyrant Aristagoras and as such Aristagoras decided that he should now side with the rebellion or otherwise face execution at their hands. He already knew that his failure to put down the Naxiot rebellion would probably cost him his tyranny once the Achaemenids and their king Darius found out. So Aristagoras along with other Ionian rulers and with the support of the Athenians launched an offensive against the mighty Achaemenids which would see them push the Achaemenids out of the very influential Anatolian city of Sardis. This would force Darius the Great to take the rebellion very seriously. As we already know, Darius the Great would dispatch an army to Sardis to retake the city and put down what would come to be known in history as the Ionian Rebellion, sending Aristagoras away from Miletus only to be assassinated in Thrace. The Athenian card was now marked and Darius the Great would draw up his plans against them. Well, that got a bit tense, didn't it, eh? Goodness me. We're um, going to be venturing into the next phase of that uh, story, not next week. We're going to be taking an episode out to look at Greek colonisation because that was a very important aspect of the history of the Greek-speaking world. We have to really look at that because we've already looked at the Phoenicians and now we have to look at Greek influences over the Mediterranean and that should lead us into this next period, the Greco-Persian Wars, very nicely. We should have developed a very good understanding of the power of the polis and uh, that should lead us nicely into what will be a two-parter on the Greco-Persian Wars but the first episode will focus primarily on the Battle of Marathon and the second uh, of those of that two-parter will focus more on the Battle of Thermopylae and Salamis. So really we're gonna, we're gonna, we've got a lot to look forward to, a lot of tension and a lot of conflict really going to get into the thick of it I'm going to try and plant us right in the middle of the action so something to look forward to hopefully now if you want to support the podcast um, we really are grateful if you do and uh, we have our own Patreon page all you have to do is go to the history of the world podcast.com website and any donation really does help the podcast to develop and grow and Hopefully we can devote more resources and more time 
to the podcast as the donations come rolling in. So um, thank you to everyone who does donate already. You are all members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and your kind donations have made such a difference to the podcast. We have one of our patrons, Matty Yokimo, who has crossed the threshold to commission an episode on his own uh, subject of uh, subject of his choosing, and we will be um, revealing that over the course of the next month or two. So we'll be trying to research and develop that episode, and hopefully try and stick it in the middle of the Greeks and the Romans. So we'll try and finish up the Greek period, uh, get into Alexander the Great and Hellenistic period. And then as we have to cross over to the Italian peninsula and start focusing on Roman developments, that's when we might have a break for one week and entertain Matti Yokimo's mystery special episode, which I'm a little bit excited about because it's sort of taken me out of my comfort zone slightly and putting me into an era that we haven't yet discussed. So it will really be a good test. Now, as always, we always uh, let you know that reviews, rating and reviews of the podcast are very valuable indeed for us. They uh, promote the podcast on the platform that you listen to it on. I have to say thank you to Marilyn McGrath, who has recommended the History of the World podcast on Facebook with the comment, articulate, easy to listen to, but not dumbed down. Chris's touch of humour makes it extra special, LOL. Well, thank you, Marilyn. Normally my sense of humour, if I crack a joke, I'm normally met by a row of blank faces, so I appreciate the compliment. Thank you very much. Now, have you tried the History of the World flashcard games? Now, if you go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and go to the interact section, right down the bottom there, it says games. You can click on them and there's two little games you can play where you can really drill into your mind um, the uh, imagery of ancient writing and prehistoric ancient art and ritual you can learn to recognize specific objects and specific writing styles and learn them and impress your friends you know if if your friend comes up to you with a, a piece of ancient writing you can go oh yeah yeah i recognize that that's the brahmi script so it would be um something of great value uh, to be honest with you i think most of you will live your lifetimes um, without anyone coming up to you with a piece of the Brahmi script but nonetheless it will still make you feel good about yourself to have learnt something so go and give it a try and uh, let me know how you get on let me know what you think of it and uh, also give me some ideas as to other flashcard sets that can be produced that you might be interested in so I'm just going to close by promoting one of my good friend's podcasts he always promotes uh, my podcasts but is uh, he's really the, uh, an expert in this field so all of this information about ancient greece you can learn so much more by going and listening to ryan stitt's history of ancient greece podcast so if you find these particular episodes interesting you will absolutely love and become addicted to ryan stitt's history of ancient greece podcast so if you don't listen to that you must be mad 
go and uh, add it to your favourites now and uh, learn more about these fascinating subjects which we're presenting to you right now at the History of the World podcast. And now, Nick Barksdale of the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages uh, YouTube channel, who very kindly produces video versions of some of my podcast episodes, amongst many other things. It's very much worth visiting his channel and having a click around. He was kind enough to post something on my Facebook page relating to this new uh, discovery of Neanderthal DNA in African Homo sapiens, in modern African people. So this is very interesting because it was previously thought that um, Neanderthal DNA only existed in humans outside of Africa, but it seems that it maybe has been proven that there is Neanderthal DNA in Africans, and this is very interesting because it suggests a migration of human beings out of Africa and maybe procreating and then moving back into Africa, which is something that I'm a huge advocate of because I do feel like that when we're studying these kinds of things that we're trying to pigeonhole things and and trying to pinpoint movements, migrations, years that it happened. And the reality is that human beings just go where they like, don't they? So, like, there is absolutely no reason why they wouldn't come out of Africa, go back in, come back out, go back in, come back out. And so it's an interesting article. It's worth a read. Um, If you do discover anything else or you've got any thoughts about any of the content of the podcast, then by all means, please do send me an email. The email is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. I'm always happy to read your emails. I'm always more than happy to reply to them. And always the best ones, I will read them out on the next podcast. So give yourself um, a minute of fame. Send me an email and I'll read it out on the air. And we'll uh, hopefully uh, maybe entice some people to discuss the content that um, of the podcast and of the emails that you do indeed send me. So I'm looking forward to receiving them. Don't hesitate. Go and do it now. Anyway, that's it for this week. Next week, we're going to get into Greek colonisation of the Mediterranean lands. That's going to be very interesting. It's going to set us up nicely for the next phase of this ancient Greek period of the podcast, where we enter into a century, the 5th century BCE, BCE, of mass conflict. So we're really going to get um, our teeth into some really serious issues over the course of the next few podcasts. But be sure to join me next week, Greek Colonisation. And until then, have a wonderful week, everyone. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.